This week, can art be apolitical? Is there a place for earnest, kind, thoughtful stories? What are the stakes? Do those stakes need to be sky high or can people just be? It's a thoughtful, friendly conversation with Jennifer Schwed, creator of Jules and James. Coming up on Radio Drama Revival. From underneath a blanket in a completely empty apartment, this is Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. My apartment is empty of stuff. Uh, Jillian and I are going to get on that big, big road and zoom off east, making our way to a new home and a new life. It might delay an episode if I don't get my shit together. It may not. So stay tuned, but be advised that I will be recording from the road. But enough of that for now. Uh, I talked to Jennifer Schwed, the creator of Jules and James, the podcast that we showcased last week. The Politics of Art and Jennifer's current project, a musical play about the passage of the 19th Amendment. How do we strive to be better? How do we create a better, more thoughtful, kinder culture? Keep these questions in mind as you hear our conversation. So, um, I wonder if you could tell me the origin of Jules and James. So your, your media company, Through the Fourth Wall, does all kinds of productions. How did you settle on a serialized fiction podcast? Jules and James came on the heels of another production that we had just finished. So our, our company does a lot of theatrical productions, and we had just done a two-month run of this large-scale immersive production about Edgar Allan Poe and a cast of over 30 people. It was a nonstop, it, it was a full contact sport, 24-7. We were working on this night and day, and I thought, okay, the next thing that I do is going to be tiny, intimate, and I can corral it with just a couple of actors and sit in my house and make it happen. So that was the inspiration, was to do something very quiet, small, and intimate. And the second part of it, why I chose to do the story about Jules and James, was really a reaction to the climate of the country at the time. So this was late 2016, early 2017, and mm -hmm. the rhetoric was just so brutal. And, it, and Jules and James was just a pure escape. It was just a, a, a bunch of wonderful what-if questions between these two delightful people where I could just block out reality, sit down with them, have a great time, and, and that's really what was behind writing it. Yeah, there's this, this interview that you did with The Observer last year, and you wrote of the piece, I want this to feel good. I don't want people to listen to it and have to worry about something dark and evil coming. And I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot. It feels like Jules and James exist outside of time and outside of politics. What does that mean for you? To, what does it mean to you for a piece of art to be apolitical? Is that even possible? I think art can be apolitical. I think I wander a little bit into it there with regard to the feminist angle, which I bring up a lot, where mm -hmm. Jules identifies that way, James identifies that way. We talk about James's mother. Um, that that's not only that's as close as I get to 
politics. So with regard to steering away from it, um, I, I had to for this particular piece. And it's, it's interesting because the thing I'm working on right now and have been for the last year and a half is incredibly political. So this, this had to exist outside of it. I think it was also, again, part of that reaction of, I want this to feel like it could exist in any time, in any decade, this, this story would work. Right. I think in a media culture that's been infected by patriarchy, you know, we, we consistently fight against the idea that edgy and intense and difficult media is more valuable than kind and earnest media. And Jules and James is slow and thoughtful and kind. Did you have concerns about how this show would be perceived because of that? I love your question. Thank you. <laughs> I love it particularly because you use the word earnest, and that was almost a goal. Did I have concerns about it? I did this for me. This creation was really for me. My partner in this company, completely supportive. Um, he, he worked with me on produ- producing and directing the episodes. But this was really, I love this so much that whether people loved it or, or hated it, I wasn't really writing it for somebody else's approval. It was an escape for me. I just read a review in the New York Times of a new, brand new TV show. I think it's called Lodge 49. I could be wrong. The um, The reviewer brings up the fact that so many creators are invested in stakes when they create a show. Whether that's audio, film, TV, it's always what are the stakes and, and how high are they? And Jules and James has... Almost no stakes. I mean, for the listener, it's, are they going to meet? Are they going to live happily ever after? Are those stakes extraordinarily high when it's just existing as a conversation between two strangers? And I like that the stakes don't really matter. Their, their lives go on no matter what, and they're not crushed or damaged, and it doesn't turn into something. It could turn into something tremendous, this great, wonderful relationship, but it, it is mm-hmm. sort of a low-stakes story. And I love those. And I want to embrace those. And I think that ties a little bit into also what you said about, um, you said something about the patriarchal entertainment. Did you say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that patriarchy kind of infuses what, what we think of as prestige entertainment, right? Is that it's it's difficult and unpleasant. That is that that's exactly right. And that that's a, a bit of a, a response is this bringing this this different angle to it of feeling like those. Is it edgy? No, I mean, the Jules and James is not edgy. It's not dark. It doesn't have high stakes. And those are things that we are taught to expect from entertainment. But can entertainment still work when it's just a lovely ride? And that's up to the audience if, if they feel that way. Um, it felt that way for me. It felt like when I listened back to them, and, and I haven't listened to them in a while, but I, when I would listen back to them when I'm, I'm editing them and I'm listening to them, that's what it felt like to me. Like like you could just breathe and enjoy it and go with it. And that was that was important. I, I kind of do think that there are stakes in, in Jules and James beyond, beyond just will they or won't they meet. 
But I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. Um, so I see that you've been working for the past couple of years on a 19th Amendment musical, uh, a musical about suffrage. Uh, tell me about the story of Alice Paul and what it means for you uh, for a piece of musical theater to be immersive. So so Alice Paul, so, so typically when you talk to people about the 19th Amendment beyond asking, which one was that again? They, when you say it's the one that got women the right to vote, people think rightfully and quickly of Susan B. Anthony, who the amendment was named after, but Susan B. Anthony um, died about 14 years before the law was passed. So the, the woman who really got that, that ball over the uh, end zone, I don't know if I'm mixing metaphors here, uh, was a woman named Alice Paul. So Alice Paul was this young suffragist. She was in her mid-20s when the law was passed, but she was just this tireless crusader for women's rights. She was responsible for the very first March on Washington, um, the the parade that they, not the parade, I'm sorry, wrong word, the March on Washington that, that women did in January of 2017, that a lot of that was modeled after this suffragist march um, that was done back in 1913. So she is so influential in the women's movement and so few people know who she is. And with the 100th anniversary coming up of the 19th Amendment in 2020, we wanted to do something to honor her. And, and tying back to your question on um, politics and art, this is a piece of art specifically about politics. So um, we don't call it immersive. We might have used that language somewhere. It's more, uh, we've changed the wording a little, sort of environmental and interactive. The actors ask questions of the audience. We have dancers that are spread throughout the audience. The actors come and talk to the audience as well. So there are some exchanges. It's not standard immersive theater, which is something we typically do. This is more a little bit of interaction. So the audience is sometimes part of the story. Interesting. Now from, from the clip that, uh, like the handful of clips that I saw of 19, um, it seemed like a theme that you pull out of the, the show. And I don't know, my, my suffragette history is, is pretty thin. Um, I don't remember, was, the, was Paul's March on Washington segregated? Because it seems like that's a valence of like the clip that I heard. Yes. So at the at the end of the day, it wasn't. But that is that is an issue that that we cover in this story. So the story of of nineteen and Alice Paul and suffragists and getting the right to vote. So this isn't a, a rah rah yay women got the right to vote kind of story only. We we cover mm -hmm. the the racism that was going on within the suffragist movement itself. There, there are discussions of, of race. Um, we, we tackle a lot of the, the heavy things and it's, um, it's a great story. And so few people know it, like you just said, you're, you're not, your learning of it is kind of thin. And it's, it's fascinating to me that half the population is female and I don't know what percentage is even aware of these women or what they did for women, that they, they gave us this equality and we're just, our response is who? Who are they again? What's that name? 
Um, so that was that was really important. Again, a a reaction in 2016, 2017 to story that that needs to be told. Sure. Was was there uh was there an element of Hamilton in there as well? Like if Hamil if you know if we can make the founding fathers like this vibrant and exciting piece of of entertainment, surely something with you know like a ex- almost exclusively female cast could be just as just as compelling, right? Hundred um, percent, absolutely. I I wouldn't have even broached the the topic or or gone with this idea if it hadn't been for Hamilton. So. Hamilton kicked down that door. I mean, I have no background in musicals. I'm a writer. I'm a director. I My musical knowledge is so... I can identify a piano on site, but that's about it. <laughs> when I heard the soundtrack to Hamilton, again, especially... I'm going to keep going back to 2016, especially seeing the country in this this emotional and political turmoil. Hamilton was this great comfort of there are there are building blocks to this country and we're always striving to be better and that there's there all these people throughout history we forget them we we bury their stories we know their names or or we don't know their names but they went before us and listening to that over and over was such a comfort to me that soundtrack of okay we've had to fight we've had to fight for what we need to happen in this country to make it a better place. And that's what these women did in the 1900s. And the good, bad, and the ugly of that fight, we cover it. And much like Hamilton, we go with a cast that is diverse, that, that reflects the way America looks now. So there are, to my mind, lots of little Jennifer Schwed Easter eggs embedded in Jules and James, like a call out to one of your first fourth wall productions, The Upside of Iris. Uh, but I think I'm most curious about the show within a show, the film that Jules works on. What can you tell me about Does the Moon Dream of the Sun at Night? Um, is that a project that you've worked on before? No. That that was not. That was just uh, it, that was strictly an idea for Jules and James. But no. That was not something in development, not something, not something I was actively planning on developing. But I, I, I did have plans to do some shots of scenes of it that I didn't do. To to go back to the conversation we were having earlier about stakes, um, I, I think that there's something very compelling about this about the the film within the show, uh, the idea of like two people who can never be together, separated by this unbridgeable gulf of different dimensions of existence. And my read on Jules is that she finds this idea so exquisitely romantic that the stakes for her in her relationship with James is that she wants to make her lovely story real by imposing all these rules on James so that they can never meet. Is that is that a fair connection to make? I think that's a... Awesome interpretation. Um, I I would agree that that her need to overly romanticize might be part of why she creates obstacles. Yes, and that could be a, a manifestation of her in her film. So I think that's and it's a good assessment. I mean, it's not it's not as though she's the only person to to throw obstacles in their own way to prevent them from meeting, right? Sure. No. 
I think that's not terribly uncommon. And I, I understand her hesitancy, which she brings up a few times of, well, what if we meet and all of this magic vanishes? Because that happens. And then, and then you, you lose that magic. And, and sometimes is that, is, is keeping that magic alive indefinitely better than the reality? There was a, um, a quote from the creator of Lost. I don't know if you watched Lost. I didn't, but my wife did. Okay. Oh, is this the mystery box thing? J.J. Abrams' mystery box? Yep. That was exactly what I was going to go with. And I don't know the quote exactly, but it was the idea that his grandfather had given him this mystery box and what was inside it wasn't as important as knowing that he had this this mystery box that was filled with this magic and that's that's a little bit of the it's a little bit of the idea that that stuck with me through Jules and James so Jules kind of wants to keep that ball in the air or maybe they both do Maybe they both do. What does it mean for you to build chemistry in audio when other kinds of media rely so heavily on visuals? Like, okay, so my wife and I were watching um, Before Sunrise last night as part of our my interview prep. And there's that scene in the music shop where Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke's characters go into the listening room uh, to listen to their record together. And it's silent. Like, they're not speaking, but the except for the song. And you watch desire and like the anguish of that desire denied play over Hawk's face as he's like, is now the right time to go in for a kiss? No, no, definitely not. And then he turns away. What is your strategy for building in? Because I know that Before Sunrise is a major part of the the DNA of this project. What What is your strategy for building in that kind of tension or chemistry for Jules and James? For me, it, and I don't know if this was effective. So for me, it was the beats I put into the script. So there are very specific places of silence. And and the silence is the place where the listener's imagination hopefully is engaged with, well, I hope he says this. Well, I hope she says that. And it was a build within there. And, and again, I have no idea if that worked, but I, I know, of course, the scene that you're talking about before sunrise and those pauses, it's that that there's that line between uncomfortable and thoughtful in a conversation. And I would always try to measure out listening to both of them. And when I say listening to both of them, I mean in my head while I was writing scripts of how long would I really wait? Well, what would that pause be before I said something? Because I, I think especially as a director also so much of the action in any production takes place in the silences and I looked for those opportunities within their conversation cool I kind of wanted to see how long I could let that silence go but then I realized that would be obnoxious (laughs) Well, I didn't know what you were doing. You could have been looking at your questions, studying the wall clock. I that that would have been okay. Fair. Um, can, tell me about tell me about the actors. How did you how did you cast this show? How did you 
meet these people? How did you decide that they were right for the script? Carly, who lives in London on a boat, um, she is a... No, does she live on a narrow boat? She does. Does she live on a narrow boat in the Thames? Ah! She does. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I got very excited about boats. Oh, well, then you need to connect with Carly. I mean, she writes about it, too. She does articles on it. She has a whole blog on it. She's an actor, and she does voice acting, and I was working on a different project, which I didn't ever really get out there, but I was looking for different voices and I was listening to all of these, um, listening for demos and, and I came across hers. I mean, I listened to so many and I came across hers and her voice was just, it was just such perfection and the way she delivered lines. I just had given her some sample text of something. I just adored her. And so I thought, whatever I do next... I am using Carly. Um, she is just mm-hmm. fantastic. She's she's great. And the um, James, his name is Devin. He is an improv actor who lives here in D.C. And he was in our big immersive theatrical production. And I asked him if he wanted to play James in this. Um, he he's so physically looked like what I imagined James would look like. He's, he's this, this great guy. And, and he said, yes. And we did some Skype calls so they could see each other and do a few reads together. And that's how we did it. How do you, how do you direct like a, a half remote audio drama? Like, would you be in the same? Cause I know that you and I are currently using the same technology to record your end um of this conversation as you use for the show how were you in the room um with devin when when you were directing when you were directing him and carly like how did that how did that work or was it like a conference call with all three of you you don't have to tell tales out of school but was there was there a i almost regret asking this question was there a showmance that blossomed between between devin and carly during the first season or well uh carly is married and oh, okay. Devin is engaged, so that would have been kind of brutal. Yeah, that would have been awful. Okay. Sorry I asked. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. They had great chemistry, right? Yeah. Are there any other are there any other like memories of of working on the show? Anything that, that I've called to mind or anything that I've forgotten to ask about? It was so fascinating that the out and I still get emails from people. I still, I don't know, even the last time I posted a show was sometime in 2017. I don't think I've, there were any posted. Yeah, I think it was last last summer. Mm-hmm. So it's a year and I still get emails and the emotion in the emails, people sharing their stories with me has been, so. people make my day with their their emails with their recounting of their own stories but what was so fascinating to me was of the correspondence i received at least half were from men and hmm. i only know age ranges because one person who told me he's a grandfather who lives in tennessee and he's a truck driver 
and how much you love the show. And then there was... Um, Oh man, don't sleep on uh on truck driver podcast fans. Like they have long hauls and they deeply appreciate free media. I know, I know, I know, I know. And he was so oh his it was so sweet. And then there was a, a young um a high school student who who just shared the most beautiful story about how um how much he he loved the show, but it made him hopeful for the future of, of dating and he had been through a rough breakup and and listening to this made him realize what kind of woman he should i don't know if he said woman or girl but but what kind (laughs) of 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 girlfriend he should look for and i i just thought that was so sweet and i did i did want that in addition to my inspirations for the the podcast like before sunrise i i love the idea of this being a model of a good healthy relationship between two people who really respect each other and I, I I thought that was crucial to always communicate that level of respect that they have for each other so interesting yeah that's really sweet uh Jennifer do you have any questions for me um so what happens next oh um after after we stop recording I will ask you to uh send me these files and whatever, if anything was captured on your, on your phone, um, and send that to my, my email address through your favorite service, whether that be Dropbox or Google drive, or you send it, whatever, whatever you prefer. Uh, and then I pass it off to my beloved interviews producer, Eli McElveen, creator of the fairy, fairy tale medical comedy for the ear, Alba Salix, um, which is a wonderful show which I will include in my roundup for you later. Thank you. Uh, and then we pass it back and forth. And then I write a wraparound and my line producer, Matt Boudreau, uh, assembles the episode and then we put it up on the thing. We got a whole little team there. We do. We do. It's I'm very grateful. This show has been around for 11 years. I've been the host for about three. Wow. Yeah. 11 years. That's amazing. Have people been podcasting for that long? People have been podcasting since about 2005, I think, 2006. Wow. You know, as soon as as soon as there were um I mean you, to to go back to the earliest days of syndication um oh god. Um I met I met this man. He died last year. His name was Dave Rom. And he was the creator of like one of the first fandom um, zines. And it later became like a radio station. It was called Shockwave Radio. And I think as early as like 2002, 2003, he was putting up these, um, you know, this would have been like the the Morpheus or the Kazaa, what do you call it? Napster era, right? Of, of file sharing, like the dawn of the MP3. And he was putting up these, these interviews with people and conversations about, um, I think at the time, mostly just Star Trek fandom. Um, yeah, no, uh, podcasting is fascinating and it's been, it's been around since, uh, probably since I was in high school. I just turned 30 on Friday. So I'm like trying to contextualize all of this Wow. on a, on a human scale timeline. Yeah, it's older. It's older, I think, than most people expect. Mm-hmm. I really had no idea, and I really, I, I should 
learn more about it. I should understand more about it with um, Serve Me Well. I'd love to do more. I'd love to do, um, whether it's Jules and James, or I always have a couple ideas floating around somewhere, but I I, I really should pay more attention and learn more about this. <laughs> well, it is my pleasure to 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 welcome you and say hello. Welcome to podcast. <laughs> no, that's that's very condescending. Like you've been, you're no. you're there. You're here. You exist. You know. You don't need, I mean, you need I, my I, my blessing with the scepter. No, really, it, it's totally. It's not condescending at all. I really just I, I want to make a podcast, and I didn't know what I was doing. So yeah, I mean, I'm still obviously I'm new to this. So I I, I appreciate the the formal welcome to the world. It's nice. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me. This was delightful. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This was great. And I look forward to learning more about the world of podcasting. Fabulous. I am writing this sitting in my empty apartment on the floor with Jillian as we prepare to leave California and put a bookmark in this chapter of our lives. Onward to the east. Onward to the road. Our new home. Not not really, but... I'm so excited to learn about a new region of the U.S., to explore its hills and cities, its regional hot sauces, its crab. I'm excited to explore a city with good transit and free museums, a city where my sister lives. It's going to be different. It's going to be weird. But I think it's going to be fun. Next time you hear from me, it's going to be from a hotel room somewhere along our route. I'll see you on the road. And now the credits. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Matthew Boudreaux. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreaux. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs> <laughs>